Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, writer, and lover of art, too. Normally, and obviously, I talk about old books. But every now and then, I do an episode on old art. Because encountering old art is just as much about reading, interpretation, and deep attention as reading old books is. Today, I'm really happy to welcome Dr. Elisa Yukiko Weikbrot as a guest. Dr. Weikbrot is an associate professor of art and art history at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Weikbrot has published on topics ranging from contemporary black photographers to the patronage of Hawaiian landscape paintings to documentary photographs of Japanese Americans during World War II. She also enjoys writing for general audiences on the intersection of art history, politics, and pop culture. Welcome, Dr. Weikbrot. I'm so pleased you're here on Old Books with Grace. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So technically, our focus is a little bit different today, but this is still an old books podcast, and I (laughs) still want to ask you my two favorite literary-themed get-to-know-you questions. So the first is, what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago, and why? So my favorite book from more than 50 years ago is from quite a long time ago, actually, um, and it's St. Augustine's Confessions. Um, I, I read confessions when I was in high school and I think I've read it once a year since then. Uh, I, I find something new and old in it every single time. And it, it feels like an old friend, um, at this point and just, yeah, really, really grateful for this old book that seems so distant from me. And yet the way Augustine talks about his heart feels also so familiar. I love Confessions. I'm so glad you said that. Um, it is also one of my favorite books. And I that's funny because I I have a a good friend who also reads it once a year, um, who loves it. It's one of those, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Um so then second question. Which literary character do you most identify with and why? The literary character that I most identify with is the narrator in Ina Friedman's How My Parents Learned to Eat, which was a Reading Rainbow book back in the day. And it is a story about a half-Japanese girl describing her white American father and her Japanese mother meeting and dating and trying to figure out how to eat the way that the other person knows how to eat. And I... I am half Japanese myself. Um, and so this was the first book that I have a really clear memory of thinking that I could identify with the protagonist. It was the first time I saw myself in literature. Um, and it's always just had a really sweet place in my heart for that reason. I love that. I There's something... Wait, who... What's not to love about a reading rainbow book? First right. of all, <laughs> that's, that's a that's a wonderful classic <laughs> answer, and I have a lot of sweet memories around it too. But what a beautiful book! I love that. Yeah, it's been really sweet for me. There's something um, 
something really interesting about the books that stick with you when you're that young, um, Mm -hmm. that the ones that don't ever go away and how much of a, of an influence they have over your life Mm long-term where this is a, a picture book and yet it kind of gets into, into your soul sort of. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, you know, not to overly psychoanalyze my younger self, but it, it does speak to this very human longing to be able to see ourselves in stories. Um, and I think it, it also, I I see that theme coming up again in the kind of art that I study. I'm interested in trying to see people who are on the margins, see people who might not otherwise be in the, in the center of history. Um, and, being attentive to that because I also know what it's like to feel invisible or to, to feel, have my story feel unheard or unseen. Yes. That's a theme that I sensed even in your book, which you don't talk about it in connection to your, to your personal story directly, but this idea of learning to see, learning to look, um, paying attention to the different voices coming out of a, a frame. Um, I, I totally see that. That makes perfect sense. I'm so glad that you picked up on that. <laughs> I did. It was it was really lovely. So you're an art and art history professor. Mm-hmm. What first led you into your discipline? When did you really fall in love with that? I, I'm, I'm hearing this is kind of funny because it's actually following up on your learning to look. Even when you're a, a young girl, you're learning to see, you you find yourself in the mirror and in, in the picture book mirror, and that's really moving and astonishing. But when did you find that in art and in studying art? Yes. So when I was, uh, from when I was a little girl, I've been interested in art. I was interested in, in drawing. I, I wanted to paint. I was always trying to learn more about how to do art better. Um, and when g- growing up, we were in a church context where uh, I, I felt a little bit of a tension between my desire to be an artist or to be in the arts world and this this sense in my church community that perhaps the the most holy of us would would be missionaries or would be in full-time ministry somehow. And so even as a little girl, I, I kind of felt that tension and was always trying to figure out like, well, could I illustrate children's Bibles or how could I how could I make these things go together? And um it was when I was introduced to Reformed theology and to this idea that that Jesus cares about every part of our world, that everything in this world um, belongs to him and can be part of, of kingdom work. Um, that made me really interested in in studying art more in depth, thinking like maybe I could have a future with art, but I still was primarily thinking about myself as an artist. And when I went uh, to college, I took an art history class. It was at 8 a.m. in the morning, and the professor had this amazing, beautiful voice, and he turned off all of the lights and had a slide projector with this low fan running. And it was very dangerous because many students (laughs) fell asleep as he was lecturing. And I never fell asleep 
I was awake the whole time because I just found it to be so absolutely fascinating to hear somebody talk about the history of images, the history of objects. And I, I think from that moment, I sort of knew that there was there was something a little bit different about me if I could stay awake at 8 a.m. with the lights off looking, you know, with essentially a white noise machine running yeah. just because I wanted to look at pictures. Um, and so it was in in my undergraduate work, I I didn't know that art history was a discipline. I didn't know that you could go to graduate school for art history. Um but by the end of my my time in my undergrad, I I knew that I just had a lot more questions left mm-hmm. that needed to be answered. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I had become really interested in modern and contemporary art, um, the art that I didn't initially gravitate towards, the mm-hmm. art that I was a little bit resistant towards, and through really good teaching. Um, I was starting to realize, oh, there might there might actually be something really valuable for me to <laughs> learn in art that I don't like. And the more that I learned, the more convinced I became that Jesus can show up in all kinds of places, including modern and contemporary art. Mm. And I just had a really strong sense of calling that I wanted to be essentially a, a translator for mm. the church, for Christians. Between the art world and um, like to bring things from the art world um, into conversation with people of faith and to say, here's here's the valuable stuff that we can still find and and learn and grow from here. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's really what when I went off to graduate school, it was with that idea in my in my head that I wanted to to be a bridge. I wanted to be a translator back to the church of the things that were so interesting to me now, but that I had been initially resistant to. Mm, I love that. Um, and I, I was kind of laughing while you were telling your story because uh, I wonder how many of us who ended up <laughs> going doing a deep dive in the humanities and were raised in Christian households felt that like guilt and tension about Mm -hmm. not doing something that was more obviously useful or helpful. Or um, Mm -hmm. I I distinctly remember in college having like a conversation with a friend and crying because I didn't want to like be a nurse or like, (laughs) you know, go like vaccinate children in a foreign country. Like, and I felt so bad about that. Like I I really did. Right. Um, and having those doors opened of like, oh, this is a different, uh, a different kind of need, a different kind of vision. Mm-hmm. Both are really important. Um, that's really freeing, and I, I like it that. It is in incredibly story. freeing, <laughs> and it and it says a lot about our anthropology, right? Like our understanding of what makes us human. That sometimes humans literally need vaccines and they need food on their table. And sometimes humans need art. They need beautiful things. And that is, if we really have a a fully formed anthropology of image bearing and embodiment, um, we we need both of those things. And so we can be even even as academics, even as humanities <laughs> folks, we can be stewards of God's good gifts. That's right. That's right. 
So I just finished your very helpful book, uh, Redeeming Vision, A Christian Guide to Looking at and Learning from Art. And um, I particularly liked that the subtitle includes that, that it's looking at and learning from, because it's not just, it's not just entertaining um, or just for uh, just beauty alone, which of course that is its own deeply important thing, but mm-hmm. it's also a, a a process of learning and transformation that's coming from that beauty and from that looking. And mm-hmm. for me, <laughs> the works of medieval literature I've studied, it had followed that same trajectory where it's fun and interesting, but it also a lot of these writers become my teachers. So I was wondering what pieces of art or artists have become your teachers and and why? Mm-hmm. I love that question. <laughs> um, so the the first artist that always comes to mind as as being one of my teachers is Carrie Mae Weems. And she is not an older artist. <laughs> she is a That's contemporary okay. artist. <laughs> I talk about her in um, chapter 10 of the book when I'm talking about art that engages with with history, though. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Mae Weems is um, an African-American photographer. She does a lot of work with photographs and text. And there's um, a particular piece that she, uh, a photographic installation that she made in 1995 to 1996 called From Here I Saw What Happened and I Cried. And for this work, Weems doesn't actually take any new photographs. She mm-hmm. literally digs into the archive and finds images of Africans and African-Americans that uh, are historical images. And she she re-photographs them with a colored lens over them. And she inscribes text into the the glass of the frame. Hmm. And so rather than being able to see these images as sort of objective historical documents, uh, we start, they're made strange. They're made other to us in this way. And we have to grapple with the relationship of the color and the text to this otherwise familiar image. Hmm. And in the string of, I believe 35 photographs that she puts together, she tells a different kind of history where um, she describes both the the marginalization and objectification of African-Americans, but she also describes their resistance. Mm -hmm. um, And at times, some of the the difficult choices, the seeming complicity um, that is part of that story as well. But she ends by um, having the the um, the assumed narrator kind of conclude looking at this history by saying, "And I cried." And for me, this artwork has become a model of doing history that leads to lament well. Mm-hmm. Um, that that lament, that crying out, that saying. This was this was wrong, God. Like you need to come and fix this. Um, is a an appropriate response to learning history, mm-hmm. and I feel like Weems. Um, part of how she's a, a teacher is how careful she is mm-hmm. with these primary sources, with these photographs. Um, she's a teacher because she is weaving a a really nuanced and textured narrative, historical narrative that leaves room for human agency 
And she's a model because she invites people into that history, into that response of lament, um, rather than shaking her finger or distancing Mm. us from it. So it's, for me, that has been, that artwork has over and over again provided a kind of template for how I want to do history, that I want Hmm. to be responsible with my primary sources. And I want to be generous with the stories that I tell. And I want to add complexity rather than reducing something down to a simple narrative. And I want people to feel like they can enter in and be changed by that story as well. Hmm. So she's, she's been honestly my biggest, my biggest teacher and something I keep going back to. That's beautiful. Uh, I love this interweaving of you're you're telling the truth of of something hard, but it's a complicated truth, and it's and it remains invitational in that you're saying come and learn and hear and watch and see, mm-hmm. and it's not uh, it's not um, the sort of uh, it's it's alienating, but in in this like invitational way of like oh. I'm wrestling now with this. It's right. not alienating in the sense of um, <laughs> you aren't allowed to to come and look, or you aren't you are you know uh, the the finger pointing you were talking about. Right, right. right. Like there's um, a little there's friction. There's friction, and it's so and and friction is different from dismissal, right? You know, yes, I, that's I, right. I think oftentimes right. about artworks that create a kind of rupture for us. They're, they're startling, they're unsettling in some way. They they make us look again, they, they shake us up. And then we have the choice as viewers, do we want to see that rupture as an invitation to step mm. in to what is there? Yes. Or do we see the rupture as a like, okay, I'm backing up. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave yes. now. Yes. Um, and yeah. I, and I, yeah, as, as children of God who are told not to fear, who work from abundance, um, I think we get to step into that rupture rather than saying we have to back away from it. Mm, yes. And there's, I, that's where the, the, that invitational element comes from is that there's an agency there on the part of the viewer, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. Um, and of course the agency on the part of the artwork that is doing this, yes, this provoking and thoughtful work of creating friction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I I had never heard of Terry May Weems before reading your book, and yeah, that was a a really fascinating introduction to her work. And now I'm very intrigued. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the practice of reading the art from the past, which you're already touching on in your discussion of this teacherly quality. Um, (laughs) But when we look at art, we interpret just as much as when we read a book, which is why Mm -hmm. I felt free, even though my podcast is called Old Books with Grace. I'm like, we're still doing the work of interpretation. We're still um, being called into something that is beyond ourselves and wrestling. Um, Art has has often been fraught and certainly not always straightforward in Christian history. And I'm thinking of wide ranging, sometimes serious and sometimes eye roll inducing controversies, um, like the serious one over icons and iconoclasm that kind of Mm -hmm. pops up every hundreds of years or so (laughs) up till, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, it made the news that a middle school teacher in Florida got in trouble for including Michelangelo's David, a nude sculpture in the classroom, um, Mm -hmm. which is more on the IRL inducing side of things. But there's this tension. You argue um, that faith doesn't offer us offense. This is a quote from the book. When we look at art, it offers us a path. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that idea. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that and how you envision that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think many folks who have spent time in Christian or maybe even more specifically evangelical circles have had the experience of, of trying to figure out like, what's the line for what we can look at or what's the line for what we can make. Um, and that, I'm a little tired, honestly, um, of that that kind of yes. formulation um, yes. because that's a scarcity. That's, yes. that's, that's a scarcity mindset. Like, mm-hmm. how far can I go without making God angry? Um, and I would, I, it has been so freeing to instead think about, okay, what does God actually free me to do? Right? Mm-hmm. How does mm-hmm. how does God free me to look? Um, and so the there's three major commitments um, in this in this book of the kind of looking, the redeeming vision that I want to invite people into. Um, and so the first is that our looking, and these all come from our theological commitments. So yes. um, I argue that our, our looking should be embodied um, because God made a material world that he sustains and upholds and promises to restore. And Jesus comes into that material world incarnate, lives among us, um, and uh, his his body bears the marks of that experience still in glory. Mm. So we need to take material as seriously as God does. And so Mm -hmm. that means taking the object seriously. It means taking our own bodies seriously. And it means means taking the body of the artist and his or her time and place and culture seriously Mm -hmm. as well. So that's one commitment to embodied looking. Um, And then there's also um, a a further commitment um, to looking that is loving, um, that we need to begin from a posture of love because we are fundamentally desiring creatures, not Mm. thinking creatures is from um, Jamie Smith, of course, and and others. Um, But, but thinking about how the things that we see are shaping our loves and how, if we are beginning from a premise of wanting to grow in our love for God and for our neighbor, that's going to really change how we engage with an artwork, that it's not just about me and my likes and dislikes, um, but that there is the opportunity for for love, for, for love of, of the other. And then that leads to the final commitment of transforming vision, that we're not just looking to find fun facts or to pass time or waiting around for something pretty to kind of like tickle our fancy. Um, but that in, in engaging with the visual world, that the things that we learn, the things that we come to see actually become part of us. It's integrative. Mm-hmm. And, and so as those things become part of us, it's going to allow for a new way of engaging this world. And of course, the Holy Spirit is very essential here. We don't change ourselves. The Holy Spirit changes us. 
Um, but I love how Bill Jernis observes that in scripture, whenever the Holy Spirit is moving among the people of God, that cultural cultural renewal is also following. So those hmm. things are connected to each other. Like our personal transformation and cultural transformation are connected somehow. Um, and so this this way of looking, this model of redemptive looking is, I I. I'm arguing really different from the kind of objectifying gaze that's really common mm-hmm. in our contemporary culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different from a condemning gaze. It's different from a consuming <laughs> gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, you know, like if as the beloved of God called to mimic how he sees, um, then we, we will be, we will take the material seriously we will be seeking to grow in our love for God and our neighbor, and we will be um, open to transformation along the way. Mm-hmm. And and for me, that's just that's such a more exciting way <laughs> of looking at art and moving through an art museum and scrolling Instagram and and reading an illustrated children's book than saying, ooh, thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, like, can we or can we not? Oh, absolutely. And I love that because it it's a way into engaging with things that you... I think for a lot of people, it's the same with poetry, which I work on sometimes, but it's that idea of, I don't understand this, so I I can't, I have nothing to interact with. I, I just look at it, and I don't know what to do. Um, right. I'm confused, and I, I'm whatever. But it what thinking about looking in that way allows you to move beyond like either a, um, well, I don't like the color purple, so I'm not really into this <laughs> or a, I'm really intimidated by this because I don't under, like, I know for me, I, I, your book was very helpful in thinking about how to deal with modern art because a lot of modern art, I genuinely feel like I look at it and go, I don't know what they were trying to do. I'm, I, I'm, I'm really confused, but this is an invitation into moving kind of beyond that. Um, that initial reaction of I don't understand and and, and mm-hmm. even that not understanding actually becoming something really productive and beautiful in your own heart as you kind of practice uh, a way of looking that is loving and humble too. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Very cool. Uh, so to kind of uh, go a little, a little deeper into um, what you were saying about uh, viewing and looking, I really appreciated how you follow thinkers like Francis Schaeffer and Makoto Fujimura in insisting that Christians actually really are called to creativity and generativity. Um, mm-hmm. And that looks very different for different people. Um, but I think people hear that and kind of panic a little bit and go, I'm not artistic. I'm not creative. I can see something beautiful and say, wow, that's beautiful, but that's not like... <laughs> production a production for me right. um but you your book is saying that we can be makers as viewers when we look yes. at art in opposition to say viewing as consuming or condemning or something like what you were just saying and mm-hmm. um and so i would like to hear you talk a little bit more about how viewing and making are are intimately related for christians yes 
So I'm thinking um, specifically about uh, an early 18th century floral painting by Margarita Haverman. Um, I actually talk about it a couple of times in the book because I love it so much. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I'll include a link in the show notes, folks, so that you can click on it. Although it's in the book, so you should should look at it there too. But sorry, keep going. (laughs) No, just, you know, a gorgeous still life, really detailed of all of these flowers and fruit um, and some little tiny creepy crawlies as well um, with, with just incredible attention given to the particular. And uh, there, there, I guess I'm inviting folks to, to say, okay, I, I could look at this painting and just say, I like flowers, therefore I like this painting and move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or somebody might want to take more of like a, a you know, a worldview kind of approach to this and say, um, I know something about what uh, a Dutch worldview or a Dutch approach to the world is um, in the late 17th, uh, early 18th century. And so I think Margarita Haverman is is she's doing X, Y, or Z, and I'm going to affirm that, or I'm going to um, say no thank you to that and have more of like a critical lens. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I'm really interested in is how, as we learn from how Margarita Haverman looks, Mm -hmm. um, as we pay attention to the attention that she gives to these flowers and to these insects and to mm-hmm. these fruit and to the play of light and to the the kind of texture that she is able to evoke with her paint um that that we get to then respond to that work not just with criticism but with something new and that new thing could be praise that new thing could be doxology sort of um echoing the psalmist and praising God for this little butterfly and for this amazing striped tulip and for these hollyhocks and for those perfect shiny grapes. And then we can go even further and we can make attentiveness, you know, like Mm. we can, we can be, we can give that same level of attention to some of the minutia around us that we can be paying closer attention to the things that are in our garden or on our kitchen counter, not as sort of, um, facile, I'm just looking for God everywhere, but, but as a a genuine sort of delight in the particularities of what God Mm -hmm. has made, that's the transforming vision, right? Like that is how we are changed to then see our world differently, to respond with new praise to God that maybe wouldn't be there if we hadn't seen that particular artwork. That's, that's what I'm interested in. That's, That's the kind of invitation that I want to offer to folks. I like that because it uh it's about it, it's about this it's not about the one time interaction with a piece of art like this beautiful vase of flowers it's about uh it, it's it's grows out of that but it really becomes a habit of looking more than anything else a habit of seeing that then really takes place on a soul level instead of just on a likes and dislikes um purely reactive level right exactly right and that's not to say of course that our likes and dislikes don't matter right right (laughs) well and and everyone 
has things they naturally gravitate towards and, and naturally don't. And even that in itself can actually be a fruitful exercise of learning mm-hmm. when you're mm-hmm. saying, what am I drawn to? What am I not drawn to? Why? Um, and uh, And that can be part of this habit of attention too. It's not opposed to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, An attentiveness to our own responses and what they tell us about how we've already been formed by images, how we've already been formed by the stories that we've been told and that we tell ourselves. Right. Right. Um, I never want anybody to get the idea that they need to go to an art museum and only look at things that make (laughs) them sad. Right. Right. Which I think sometimes we do get that idea. Like if you're not having a serious, uh, like solemn response and sort of, then you're not really experiencing art or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, but that's not, yeah. That's not true. And, and I, I dearly love art that makes me laugh. I, (laughs) I, I I particularly like old art that makes me laugh where um, I, you know, was visiting the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. recently and sort of went on this little journey of portraits of people who did not look like they were having a fun time with their pets. <laughs> and just like once you start looking for something like that, it's everywhere. Just <laughs> women annoyed with their dogs or, you know, this um, a queen who has a small monkey on the shoulder of her son and looks terrified by it. And those all all of those paintings have good historical reasons why they exist, why they look the way that they do. And I could tell you about them. But but sometimes there's just something so delightful about saying, "Wow, that is such a rupture from what I expect an old painting to look like or how I expect an old painting to act. That really humbles me to think about how, how much I am a creature of my own time, how little yeah. access, how little direct access I have to the past in so many ways. And to say, God, that's incredible that I can both laugh at this painting that doesn't intend to be funny um, and know that your image bearer had like real thoughtful intent behind that and Mm -hmm. that people at a different time and a different place and culture were interacting with that so differently than me. And yet we all are your image bearers. Like Mm -hmm. that's sort of wild. And I, I love I, I used to get a little annoyed with some of my students when they would laugh at art that I wanted them to be serious about. <laughs> but the longer that I've taught, the more I've realized that there is something really delightful about the humor that reminds us of our finitude and our creatureliness. Mm, and then that. being able to like move, take a step, like acknowledge it and then say, okay, but then what else can we learn? <laughs> yes. Yes. I love that too. And I think that's actually an essential element in approaching art or, or books of the past is that you have to be able to kind of laugh at your, at both the work itself and at your own reaction to it and hold (laughs) that. And it actually is, it can be really meaningful and also funny at the same time. Right. Um, Exactly. Well, this is very related to my next question for you, which is that you, and you've mentioned it a little bit, but something that comes up a lot in your book and that as we look at art is this thing that art historians and scholars call an archive. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. an archive. And it turns out that being aware of one's own archive turns out uh, to be 
central to looking at art and seeing the complexity going on there, as well as the beauty of creation and and other images of God. And so if you could tell us a little bit about what an archive is and how we can cultivate our archives and, and why that's important to think about. Mm-hmm. So I use this term, the archive, just as a way of visualizing or describing the bank of images that we all carry around in our head. Um, So the things that we have seen before that help us make sense of the world, that help us make sense of new things, new, new images, new objects, and even new people that we see. And you can think of it as a filing cabinet, though often I tell my students that they maybe think of it more as a Google search algorithm instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the your archive are the the, the 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 things that just pop into your head when I say, what does a good mother look like? What does a leader look like? Who can you make fun of? What does a beautiful bouquet look like? What's a good sunset? Like those are we all have images that are sort of popping into our heads, and those images don't come from nowhere, right? They they mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. have a, they have a history. They come from somewhere, and um, I I'm more and more convinced that when we are looking at artworks, that part of taking our personal embodiment, our embeddedness in, in time and place and culture seriously is to acknowledge, well, here's the stuff that's already in my head that mm-hmm. might be shaping how I'm responding to this artwork, whether I'm responding to it positively or negatively. And to sort of do a, a self-assessment of um, you know, how we've been formed so that we can better listen to the artwork itself, pay attention to the artist, and and think about what the artist might have had in his or her own archive that led them to make something that looks this particular way. Um, the, The first example I use in the book is this very famous 1936 photograph by Dorothea Lange of Migrant Mother. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the, the du jour image of the Great Depression in the United States. Um, I guarantee every single one of you listening to this has seen this image. It, it was in your high school textbook, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Yeah, yes. it, is, it is the 1930s image. <laughs> um, but that, you know, a, a photograph like that one, it, it both comes from somewhere. It is borrowing from the visual language of the Madonna and child. Mm. And it is continuing to act because it shapes a lot of contemporary humanitarian photography mm. um, or it shapes our ideas of, of who the noble poor are and what they look like. Um, and so being self-aware about the images that are already in our heads um, is a is a really important step and being able to be honest with mm. artworks. Yeah, it, it's that, it's that uh, idea of asking both where did this artwork come from and where are my own reactions to it coming from and acknowledging that it's not, not that we live in a vacuum, that we actually are drawing from all these both uh, potentially very helpful resources and things that are more kind of culturally questionable where Mm -hmm. I wish I didn't have that in my archive. I wish, you know, um, so I, it, Thinking about it in your book, you you talk about this sometimes in relation to some very uh, difficult things to think about, like when we look mm-hmm. at art that 
has like uh, like na- nationalist art or mm-hmm. art that's invoking old ideas of race and how these are drawing on archives and our own archives that are still present today and all that wrestling that's bound up with that. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's it's uh, such an interesting concept for thinking about how we're we're not in a vacuum. We have all this stuff around us that we're taking in as we look at a piece of art too. Right, right. And so meaning making is this kind of negotiation. It's a conversation rather than if I just have this little key, I could unlock the artwork and the, and the meaning is going to be sitting right there. <laughs> right. Right Which there is what we me. expect sometimes. I don't know right. why. But. <laughs> and, we, and we forget, you know, we forget that we have bodies. We forget yeah. that we have whole histories ourselves. And, and that, we, you know, some of us may have been taught that we're supposed to be kind of a blank slate when it comes mm. to an artwork, that our only job is to try to re-inhabit the mind of the artist. And I I really don't think that, again, as as Christians who are taking our creatureliness seriously, um, that's not something that we're called to do. We're not mm. we're not called to to deny the 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 body and the history that God has given us when we're interacting with culture. Um, this is all part of our 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 culture making, right? Mm-hmm. The the mm-hmm. the things that we make and, and the way that we tell stories. Mm. So relatedly, you teach one of uh, one portion of your book is teaching this sort of toolbox of things that you can use to think about art if you're um, sort of struggling with as you look at our, um, a piece of art, like say in a in a museum, or even if you're looking at an image on social media. Um, but this toolbox that you can think about as you're sort of really looking seriously at at art um what kinds of elements are there in this sort of art toolbox that you describe yes this section of the book that first section of how to look was was really exciting for me as an educator to say I really think I really think you all can do this. Um, yes. I teach a lot of non-majors who are taking intro to art history as mm-hmm. uh, as their fine arts distribution, and there's it feels great to be able to have an economics major or a biology major, or a pre-engineering major, sort of light up and realize that they may not be quote unquote artsy, but they can look at art. Yes. Um, and so this, this toolbox is supposed to be empowering, right? Yes. So um, we start by talking about just the building blocks of art and visual culture, the formal elements and principles. I walk you through um, how the the kind of ingredients of an artwork and the maybe the flavor profile of an artwork <laughs> relate to each other. Um, I help you think about different kinds of mediums that artists use and specific questions that we might ask. Um, are there different questions to ask about painting rather than photography, for example, or sculpture? Um, and then uh, spend some time like practicing that kind mm-hmm. of close looking of what do you see and how is how how is the artist um drawing your attention? How's the artist sort of shaping your experience of this artwork? Um, and just really practicing slow, careful looking. And after we've done that slow, careful looking at the object, um, then we can start to talk more about the archive and the things that we bring with us to the artwork um, and what where the artist is in in history um, as a as a particular embodied person. 
and then I also want us to think about sort of the frame of the artworks. Mm. Maybe not necessarily the the actual literal frame, but but where is it that we are encountering an image or an art object, um, and how might that actual space be shaping our experience? So I talk a little bit about artworks that are made for particular places. Um, and this is a lot of um, medieval artwork, a lot yes. of church artwork, yes. for example, are made for particular places. And so if we see them in a museum context, we're seeing them in a different context than what they were originally intended to. Um, and the museum is going to shape how we experience that thing. Um, we might, we'll be seeing it, you know, at the, at, at the, very least, we're seeing it under different lighting conditions and with a different <laughs> amount of access than we would have had. Um, but then I also talk about just looking at images on your phone, looking at images on a computer screen, and and really taking seriously what are the the limitations, but also some of the possibilities of being able to zoom in super far on something um, when you're looking at it digitally. And that's something that you can't do when you're in a museum without, you know, a guard getting all up in your face. <laughs> right. Getting your nose like up next to the paint might be a right. real problem. I really appreciated this part because um, I, I, I hadn't thought I hadn't made, like, obviously I, I, knowing that much of medieval art was created with a very specific context in mind, whether that was altarpieces or within books of hours or um, for private devotion at home, much of medieval art had an actual space that it was created mm-hmm. for with, uh, and so I, you talk about uh, one example that you draw upon is Caravaggio um, and uh, this changing setting. And I, I, I honestly, it blew my mind then to think that today most images are created decontextualized or mm-hmm. only for a screen. And I just had never thought about that before. That was so interesting to see what then that does, like for both for good, as you say, the zoom in, but also for then you can kind of ignore the embodied aspect of it. Um, and Anyways, I'm kind of yeah. rambling, but that was something really fascinating to me. Well, and that's, it's actually a reason um, why I've come to have a greater appreciation for the connections between like early Christian medieval art and contemporary art yes. is because they're actually, a lot of contemporary art is made to be site specific. It's incredibly material. It matters what it's made out of Mm -hmm. the same way that it matters that um, a medieval artwork is made from this particular ground up pigment or from real gold or has actual jewels in it, right? Or, or a bone from, um, from a saint. And there's so much contemporary art that is made to respond to a particular mm. place that's mm-hmm. supposed to be immersive and embodied for the viewer and where the materials themselves really, really matter. Um, so that's been, uh, as somebody who was a little bit, I don't know what to do with medieval art, the more I've studied contemporary art, it's actually been a, a really neat re-entry point mm. for me to medieval and older church art. Oh, that's a beautiful feedback loop that had <laughs> never occurred to me. I, But I really appreciate that. And that actually helps me to to think more positive. Uh, not, I mean, you can think positively and negative. I know that that's not really 
uh, you know, both ways you can enter in, in different ways, but just that I'm not so, uh, like, I don't understand. Um, (laughs) picking up on that thread is very helpful. So I know we're winding down on time. Um, and, uh, real quick, I'd love to hear for you as an artist and art historian, what's on your wish list for art you haven't seen yet? What would you love to see that's out there in the world? There's a lot of things I would like to see. I wouldn't expect anything else yet in the world. <laughs> um, but one that has been on my bucket list for a while um, are the the sixth century mosaics in the Church of San Vitale in Ravenna. That's Italy. on my list too. Oh, I just I need to go see these in person. <laughs> Me too. Oh my goodness. Yes. I've been thinking about this. Sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. <laughs> no, I mean, I I want I've looked at so many photographs of them. I've I've taken like a virtual tour and I know it's going to be so different in person with the material and the the contrast of the exterior of the church versus this jewel box of an interior and being able to walk through the ambulatory and see the sunlight coming through the windows, catching on all these gold mosaic tiles. I I just I know I need I know I need to see it in person. Yes. I love that. That honestly, that was that would have been my answer 100. Um, it comes up all the time, and I'm like, why haven't I been there? This is yeah. so. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> where can for folks who are interested in finding out more about what you're up to, what's going on with you, um, where can they find you online? So I am only an occasional Twitter user at. Elissa Brot, uh, E-L-I-S-S-A-B-R-O-D-T. But I am an enthusiastic Instagram user because I love images. <laughs> um, and sense. so you can also follow me there at Alyssa Brot. And I try to do some um, some fun art history. I think about it as kind of a public art history space, um, sharing some of the expanding on ideas that are started in the book and and kind of trying to um, model what a a practice of living and looking with art well might look like. Mm, that's awesome. Um, I I can attest to the the fun element. I follow you, and I really enjoyed your recent uh, patterns week where you were yeah. dressing <laughs> in different patterns. That was a fun time. I really liked it. So. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Whitebroat, and um, thank you for giving us all these helpful tools and ways of entering into thinking about art and looking at art. Thank you for having me, and I hope we get to go to Ravenna soon. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and you can find me online on Twitter, if it's still alive at this point, at Grace Hammond, Ph.D., you can also find me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this episode and would especially appreciate a rating or review left on the podcast platform of your choice. It helps others to find the episode and it helps me out too. You can also find me on Substack at gracehammond.substack.com, where I send out a monthly newsletter that discusses different topics relating to literature of the past, faith, and beauty, especially medieval things. It's called Medievalish with Grace Hammond. Thank you again for listening. Oh,